Also sold separately. Comics. My spidey sense is tingling. Collectibles. Sold $325. Books. I'm a best-selling author. RPGs. Where are the Cheetos? Video games. Grab and fields. <laughs> Music. <laughs> Anime. I'm the hero. This is the G to V Podcast. Hello and welcome to the G2V Podcast. I'm Scott Woodard. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And for the first time ever, Arnold and I are actually sitting about four feet away from each other. I can see you. Ooh, it's scary. That's right. It's frightening. Yeah, Arnold, actually, uh, you, you made the trip across the country to come visit me here in uh, in Portland. And you, you remember where you live. That's I, yeah, good. Yeah, it took me a little while. I had, it, took, it took me a little effort That's to, right. to put those pieces together. But uh, so you actually, well, let's just, let's, well, let's start right off the bat and let people know that uh, this is your first time here. It's my first time in Portland. And yep. uh, what was the, well, I mean, obviously you wanted to come out and, and see me and, and visit the city, but there was another reason that you came out here. And what exactly was that? Well, the main thing was we've, we've been doing the podcast for a little while. We've certainly known each other for longer than that. I was very interested in coming to Portland and visiting, but... When would I do that? Well, the perfect opportunity arose when, well, first of all, you've been telling me for months and months about how everything you'd ever want to know about pop culture slides down the country to Portland. <laughs> and uh, it was just a matter of time. And every week was like, oh, guess what's at the theater right down the street? Every movie you've ever wanted to see. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Um, but as Halloween was approaching, everything seemed to be getting even more interesting. And then this weekend that I decided to visit finally was because they were having a two-night... Was it two nights? It was. It was Friday and Saturday night. A two-night Lovecraft Festival at the Hollywood Theater here in Portland, Oregon. And the uh, the crown jewel of the presentation, in addition to a variety of short features based on various Lovecraft stories or inspired by Lovecraft, was the screening of a 35-millimeter print of Reanimator. Woohoo! And finally I decided this was the time to just <laughs> go for broke come out here and be able to enjoy that with you and uh and hopefully have a chance to actually sit down and do the podcast in person too so herbert west brought a lot of dead people back to life and not one of them showed any appreciation hp <laughs> lovecraft's classic tale of horror reanimator mr west You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. It will scare you to pieces. Yeah, it worked out really well. Really well. Uh, we had a good time. We actually just saw it last night. Yep. Um, uh, the only the only bit of deception on the part of the theater, and it is my favorite theater, absolutely favorite theater. I, I am a member, and I support this theater wholeheartedly. It's the Hollywood Theater on Sandy, uh, if anybody here in the Portland area is familiar with it. And uh, but it was advertised as a pristine print, a pristine print, thirty-five millimeter print, and it was not to say it was far from pristine, but uh, it had its issues. It's had its issues, yeah. I mean, but, most of it was pretty clean. Yeah, most of it was pretty clean, uh, besides some 
scratches and dirt and that kind of thing. The only part that was a problem was it actually dropped out a couple lines of dialogue in one scene. Yeah, that it, was like, tragic. Yeah. Was that when he was trying to reanimate... Uh, when he reanimates Dean Halsey. Yeah. It, it, and it also skipped one of my favorite bits, which is where he just kind of slams his hand down on the table. Oh, and that's, that's when right. Halsey wakes up, but it skipped over that, and it's like, oh, well. Oh, well. But it was still amazing. We, we got to see it in a theater. I never saw it in a theater before. I never saw it with a group of people before. Yeah, it's a totally different experience. And the reactions were amazing. And we've talked a lot about this since last night. But one of the things that struck me was how much more of a comedy it feels like when you watch it with a crowd. Oh, yeah. Everybody laughs and reacts to a lot of the stuff that's really funny. Everybody cheers and claps whenever Wes does anything. <laughs> But uh, you you were especially amused by um oh the dead puppet oh, cat yeah <laughs> there was somebody off to the right when the puppet cat reanimates for the second time it's like oh the kitty <laughs> it's like what the fake kitten with its spine broken extraordinarily fake looking cat puppet. yeah I don't, I don't think we have to worry about Rufus anymore yeah, it's Rufus. fine <laughs> Rufus <laughs> well anyway enough of that enough of that uh, stuff. enough of that nonsense. Uh, but no, it actually leads right into a topic we've been discussing for a little while that we wanted to touch base on, especially for the season, and that was Lovecraft's legacy, or the legacy of Lovecraft, right? Uh, especially in film and, and TV. And But we'll also talk a little bit about gaming. Uh, there's certainly plenty of Lovecraft stuff out there, Cthulhu stuff in board games and role-playing comics. games and comics and video games. Everything you can think of. Uh, it's kind of shocking because prior to the show, prior to, to us recording, we started sort of t- throwing titles out and re- realized that uh, it almost seems like everything is in some weird way at least slightly influenced, uh, at least a lot of the stuff that we're fans of, for sure. Yeah, and the other thing is that uh, as much as I'm a fan of so much of this stuff, I've never been someone that's actually actively sought out or read nearly as much of Lovecraft's original material. Right. And I'm having my eyes opened as we were sitting here talking about it, about just how deeply his work has really threaded through and affected so much of the stuff that I've grown up loving, many bits and pieces of which I didn't even know had that kind of... All this time later, I'm realizing just how wide a scope there is. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, and and especially how... Uh, you know, we don't want to go too, into too many details about uh, the the writing process and certainly the publishing aspect of, of Lovecraft. But, you know, there, there is that whole shared universe thing that just exploded and obviously led to, to films and radio and other forms of adaptation of that, of that genre. Um, you know, Robert E. Howard, for crying out loud, wrote hmm. wonderful Cthulhu mythos stories, although he typically had things get resolved with, at the end of a gun. <laughs> uh, than through you know, research or science or sure. whatever the case may be, and uh, but it was um, it is a it is quite a seed mm-hmm. that was planted by this crazy xenophobic madman. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and it seems at a certain point, like a lot of the things that we are fans of or interested in, it seemed to cross a line at some point not too long ago where it was really embraced on a whole new level of pop culture. Because when you think about it. There isn't a convention or science fiction or horror-themed event you can go to today where you aren't assured of finding, like, a table with a plush Cthulhu somewhere. Oh, God, yeah. Or the merchandising alone of just the the notion of some of these creatures. Mm -hmm. That seems to have really tipped over in only a very recent period of time. Yeah. And now everybody's embraced it. My wife has the Cthulhu fish on the back of her car. I have one as well. Yeah. So it's just something that's become a badge of honor for people that are fans of so many of these things. Just too. preparing us for the return of the old ones. That's right. That's all it is. Uh, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, everywhere you go, it seems. I mean, even if you're, even if you're going into into 
uh, mainstream shops for, I mean, I, you know, I'm currently working at a bookshop here. Mm -hmm. I'm working at Powell's here in, in Portland. And, uh, we have, I guarantee we have, uh, whether it be Cthulhu plushies, <laughs> plush, plush Cthulhus or, uh, the various card games and dice games. There's Cthulhu dice, things sure. like that. We have all that stuff on the shelf alongside, mm -hmm. obviously, all the, the various books. At our home, we have a very, very large green-winged plush Cthulhu. <laughs> Is he snuggly? He's very snuggly, yes. Yeah, he's a huggy Cthulhu. Oh, isn't yeah. that nice? He wants to take over the world, I assume, <laughs> or something, but right now... Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, maybe some of the films uh, that have either been adapted or uh, have been based on elements of, or certainly just been inspired uh, over the years. And we can certainly go back... Quite a few years, but it seems like it really kicked in sort of during the whole Corman uh, film era, and certainly one of your favorite films. One of my favorite and, movies. And I, I would have to agree as well, and that would be The Haunted Palace. Yes. Oh, I love that movie. You are invited to an open house where horror will be your host. The Haunted Palace. You who find a kind of macabre boyishness in the horrifying, will enjoy yourselves as in ecstasy in The Haunted Palace, starring Vincent Price, a being who lived and died and lives again. I'll not have my fill of revenge until this village is a graveyard. And intriguing Deborah Paget, whose appealing beauty inflames the blood of the bloodless. Charles, please. Well, I've been very busy, but I'm back now. Charles. No. We have the whole no. night before. No. His violent, no. torturous passions inflict no. both pain and terror. It, it, it sort of ties for first place for me in terms of Vincent Price movies with House on Haunted Hill as one that I could put on any time. Right. But it's part of that wonderful... It's, all, it's one of those great little stories that if you're a fan of this stuff, you know the story already anyway. But it's part of the famous Roger Corman post cycle mm -hmm. that he did with Vincent Price. And yet, it's a Lovecraft adaptation. Yeah. What? Why would they do that? <laughs> well, as Corman often talks about, and it's on one of the DVD releases of it too, he very much wanted to explore other options and do a Lovecraft story, but... For various reasons, including, I think, the, the wants of the distributor, they wanted to do another Poe, because those were selling. So they did the adaptation of, uh, what's the actual title? The Strange Case of Charles Dexter uh, the Ward? Case, yeah, The Case, the of, case Charles of Charles Dexter Ward. And um, then crazily appended a couple lines of um, Poe's Haunted Palace to the beginning and end of the film uh, that Price does as voiceover. Right. And it has so little connection to Nothing it. Just, at all. It doesn't make any sense at all. But it doesn't matter because it's also an incredible adaptation. I mean, and I, I only know this, like, secondhand, but I know that there are many people who are uh, Lovecraft aficionados who feel that that's one of the really good ones. That oh, that's yeah, it's a movie excellent. That, it's excellent. And it's also just so much fun. Vincent Price being as gleefully evil as he can possibly be and also getting to play a really nice guy at the nice same guy, time right. who's slowly losing his mind <laughs> to his own ancestor. And uh, Deborah Paget, who is always absolutely perfect and beautiful. Sure. And certainly everybody who ever saw Ten Commandments remembers her from Ten Commandments. Um, and that was actually Haunted Palace, if I remember correctly. That was her last film. Also. Oh, really? Yep. 
And um, it's just one of my all-time favorites, yeah. It includes Lon Chaney Jr. and uh, some pretty damn good effects considering Corman and that kind of thing. It's just the, the atmosphere is great. Oh, yeah, so. the, the atmosphere. That is a very, very creepy movie when they're in the town and you see sort of all the people with the uh, distorted faces and all the crazy clay makeup uh, stuff. Yeah, whatever's I mean, going it, yeah, on but it's it's for its time. It was it's pretty convincing, and it, at the very least, it's eerie now to look at that. Stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then of course you have uh, you know this Cthulhu like creature at the end that you see. It's sort of brightly lit and in the sort of this green glow, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you see it in the pit when yeah. he, they're trying to sacrifice people to it, including her at the end, and. It's this weird distorted fisheye lens kind of thing. Sure. Appropriate enough, I oh, guess, uh, a fisheye lens. It, yeah. And, yeah, it's cute. It's some kind of nondescript, non-moving thing. puppet thing. Non-moving <laughs> puppet thing. But it's In fine. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, that's a great one. Um, if you've never seen that, certainly check out The Haunted Palace. Uh, it's not too difficult to get your hands on the copy. Oh, that. no, not at all. No. I think I have that one of those um, double feature releases that were done. It was at MGM, or I think, released those where it was... I, it's, I can't remember where you what can the get like film two is, films yeah, on a thing. Yeah, it's right. got Haunted Palace and then uh, another Vincent Price. Yeah, one. Uh, Tower of London. Tower of London. I think you're right. I think you're right. And I was just double checking to be sure. And yes, in fact, I wanted to make sure I wasn't giving anybody false information. But yeah, that was Deborah Padgett's last role. Wow, that's cool. She went on to marry a very wealthy businessman and left Hollywood entirely. <laughs> and the last two things she had done were Corman films. She'd also appeared in um, the Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar, the Tales of Terror segment. Okay. That was also one of those movies. So, right, right. Yeah. And then off she went. But Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. There, was, there were some other ones that uh, came out around that era. Uh, certainly, um, oh gosh, now I'm totally spacing. Well, I can throw out another one for you. Um, the one with uh, um, Karloff. Uh, hmm. Oh, yes. Uh, that would be Die, Monster, Die. Die, Monster, Die. 1965. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Which is two years after Haunted Palace. And I think, isn't that another one that's influenced by Color Out of Space? It's Color Out of Space. (laughs) It's considered the first adaptation of Color Out of Space. In in order to do this right, ladies and gentlemen, too, I'm also relying heavily on uh, (laughs) resources. So, yeah, I'm looking at a list right now. But Which there's is fine. Which quite a few fine. changes, quite a few changes from the story, but yeah, that's one of the early ones. Let me let me point out here, I am in no way an authority on Lovecraft. <laughs> um, I'm cer- a fan. I've certainly read I've read pretty much everything he wrote, mm-hmm. and I've read a lot of what his contemporaries wrote, and I've certainly seen a lot of these films and and I've certainly played the games. So that's the extent of my knowledge, but there're definitely going to be some things here I'm sure I'll get horrifically wrong yeah and i'm even more removed than you but i think one of the things we're really trying to talk about here it's exactly why we called it the legacy is the fact that this is one individual who created a mythos that has filtered through so much pop culture that whether you ever went back to the original material or not it's just present in so much stuff including many things you may not even be aware of yeah before we even started recording the episode i was thinking yeah like stuff like stephen king's the mist is lovecraftian and its approach it's all over the place and it comes right up to the present day yeah so i mean not to say we're going to go through every era and oh, every film it's impossible no. as we were just saying i mean you know i just another one that i just saw on the big screen alien of course alien is very much influenced it's very much influenced by that stuff sure but Sure. But yeah, we won't touch base on everything. No. (laughs) no. I don't think it's possible. For almost two decades, 
Midnight Syndicate has composed the soundtrack to your darkest nightmares. The imaginations of fans worldwide have been fueled by its gothic, horror, and fantasy symphonic albums. A staple of the haunted house and amusement park industry, for many, the music of Midnight Syndicate is the music of Halloween. Now, Midnight Syndicate will bring your nightmares to life in a spectacle of sight and sound from beyond the grave. Support Midnight Syndicate Live on Kickstarter.com today. I think one of the ones we got to bring up, though, is the Dunwich Har. Oh, yeah. 1970. Now, I know a lot of this is a much maligned film. Yeah. And a lot of, certainly Love, Lovecraft Pure, Love Crap. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> there you go. Lovecraft Purists. Um, many, many have uh, quite the negative opinion of this particular Maybe film. that's the category they give it. That's the, the love, love crap. The love crap. <laughs> well, I have to give it a shout out because my wife, Stephanie, loves Dunwich Har. That's a movie she remembers really well. Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell with his wild hair and Sandra <laughs> D. I um, like the movie. I, I actually do. I, I think it's one worth revisiting if you've seen it and maybe didn't think much of it. It might be worth looking at again. I'm right about that, aren't I? That's Sandra D. I'll check that. Oh, uh, I don't remember. I'll have to check. That's I'll fine. Make sure I get that right. But, but yeah. yeah, it's certainly and it's certainly one of the earliest ones that appears to actually attempt to directly adapt something, right? And say this is a Lovecraft film in a way that even Corman's couldn't because sure. they had to label it a different way, right? So there are people that consider it a cult movie, but I would imagine, yeah, if you're if you're really steeped in it. You're not going to be too happy with it necessarily. So. Well, I don't think any of the movies that have been produced you could really sit down with with the original text and follow along. I mean, that's just <laughs> not going to happen. So a lot of liberties have been taken with these films over the years. Sure. Um, I, I are there any others uh, earlier releases there that are leaping out? At not you? a lot of others around that time period. It seems like when you look at the list, things start to slip further and further toward the 1980s, and you get closer and closer to things like reanimator and what we're already looking at which is when that sort of little repertory company of Stuart gordon and brian yuzna and and their various actors who would filter around their work was like let's do lovecraftian stuff right and reanimator begat what arguably i think might even be more fun sometimes (laughs) and i know that my wife and i both love the movie is from beyond every journey begins in the mind A flight of imagination. A vision of what might lie across the universe. Or within the deepest regions of the subconscious. Dr. Edward Pretorius is about to embark on such a journey. It's out of control. You've got to turn it off. Something's coming. I'm going to kiss you. Humans are such easy prey. From the makers of Reanimator, from beyond. And I just rewatched that before coming out here to Portland. I was watching From Beyond. It's that's interesting in that the entire story is the pre-title sequence. Yeah. They burn off the Lovecraft material before the titles come up. Right. And then the rest of the movie is, all right, well, now what are we going to do? Yeah. Well, we'll tell a story. 
So, and yet, um, from what I understand, that one's well regarded. But I'm sure again, for yeah. different reasons. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I, I mean, I think the '80s era is definitely a good one we could focus on because, of course, that's when we were watching a lot of this stuff. And absolutely, um, there, there's a couple of films that a lot of people forget about, and I think the only the first one is the one I'm particularly fond of. Not very good. I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm not necessarily recommending these, but the unnameable. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw them. I've never seen the unnameable. Yeah, they did. I think they did two. You yeah. know, no, who knows? They may have done more. Done more than that. But I'll tell you one of the best things about those films because I I believe it's the same actor in both of them. Is there's an actor who plays uh, uh, Randolph Carter. Yeah. And he is great. And he's if you just watch the movie. I'll just say just watch the first one. Okay. Just watch it for his performance. He's wonderful. He kind of does a sort of a Herbert West, Jeffrey Combs kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of, you know, a distant, a little bit more aware of things than anyone else is. Uh, a great character. Mm-hmm. Um, I d- is it a name? Can you see anything there? Maybe who played him? I'll I don't have know if to you look have it that up. information. But, but, uh, but uh, not a bad, I, again, but it's not, it's not the unnameable. It's not, it's not an adaptation that's. I don't know. It's not. It's not something that you're really going to say that's a perfect adaptation of a Lovecraft story, but it's kind of an entertaining film. It's not a name that leaps out. Actually, the lead is um, Charles Klausmeier. Oh yeah, no, Charles no, no. Klausmeier. No. Well, that's a different character. <laughs> Randolph Carter is played by Mark Kinsey Stevenson. Okay. I think I had Mark Kinsey Stevenson trading cards when I was a kid. <laughs> that was everybody was collecting those. No, he has seven credits. Oh. Two of them being the two unnameable, the two unnameable movies, movies. So. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. He's a, he is very entertaining in those films, but they're yeah. not particularly good. No. But I've certainly heard of that. And then, of course, there was um, The Resurrected in 1991, oh, which that I know about. Yeah. I mean, can we start Directed by Dan talk? O'Bannon. Yeah, I want to talk about The Resurrected because uh, this actually is one that I, I do recommend highly. The only thing I don't like about this, Chris Randon is in that one, if I remember correctly. That's right. He's great, but there's the cop or the investigator who is terrible. And I don't. I'm sorry. I don't know who who the actor was. Are we going to shame him? Well, yeah, I think we have to shame him because I think he is actually somebody of note, if I remember correctly. Maybe he has gone on to have no career, but I think it was one of those actors where you saw him and you, oh, I've seen him before in some cop show or something. Okay, I'm going to have to look. Oh, it up. Oh yeah, look it up. I don't know what the character name would be. Oh though, well, he'd probably fine. be one of the main leads. So he'd probably John be. March is played by John Terry, Claire Ward by Jane Sibbett, Chris Sarandon is Charles oh, you know Dexter what? Ward. It might, have been jo- it might have been John Terry, and if it's John Terry, he played Hawk the Slayer. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm pretty sure anyway. So I think it, we got a very poor performance from that particular lead. Sarandon is very good. Uh, it has an incredibly creepy sequence in that movie. I don't know. Have you seen it? I saw it a long time ago, but I don't remember it well, and since it's basically the same story as Haunted Palace, it's sure. not one that really impressed on me because to me, Haunted Palace is that story. Okay. So I, it wasn't, oh, it's another version of that. I don't right. need that. I have Vincent Price. But so, there, is a, there is genuinely a, a, genu- a very, very creepy sequence where they're in these tunnels where the, the, the creatures are wandering around, hmm. these sort of the resurrected creatures. Right. And if I remember correctly, it's been a few years since I watched it, I do have it on DVD, but I just haven't put it in recently. Okay. Um, and I think their flashlight gets knocked out or goes out, uh-huh. and it's in darkness. Okay. And you know these things are just right there, and it is it is really eerie. Cool. It's uh, it's it's actually that's a it's a good one. 
Interesting. And if it was John Terry, I'm really sorry. It is. It does actually <laughs> say also that there's a cut from Dan O'Bannon that's never been released. Oh, I, a I different would give anything cut of it. to see that. It also had a different title. According to this, Dan O'Bannon's cut was called The Ancestor. Oh, that's an interesting so, yeah. title. So, with all of the special edition and other stuff that's going on, I'm surprised that there wouldn't be enough of a push to do, like, here's the special edition of The Resurrected. Yeah, but, but I don't know what the deal is with Dan O'Bannon's stuff, you know, after it's been gone for a few years now. But that puts us pretty well into the 90s, too, and by then you're seeing a lot of stuff that's either influenced or inspired whether it's the Stuart Gordon group coming back together with Castle Freak or a movie actually called The Necronomicon that had uh, combs in it. Uh, oh, you know what's funny about that? i got to tell this little st- side story Yeah, about The Necronomicon. So I was on set for Cabin Boy. Okay. And uh, I think it might have been the first day we were there. And the same stages where we were shooting Cabin Boy, they were shooting the Necronomicon. <laughs> really? And and uh, Tom Savini and his entourage walked in and, you know, just sort of acting like they own the place in <laughs> typical Tom Savini fashion. Mm. And, yeah, we got a lot of, uh, so what are you guys working on? We're working on the Necronomicon. <laughs> and we're, well, cool, I guess. And, uh, of course, we shared that we were working on Cabin Boy. We probably shouldn't have been that excited either, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I'll never forget that. I've never seen that. I think it's an anthology film. Yeah, it's an anthology. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's four stories. Three Features four stories. rats on the walls and one thing, which, by the way, we we're talking about Reanimator, and I love the whole Reanimator series, and we have just talking about it since we saw the movie. Bride is a great sequel, but I've mm-hmm. been talking about the fact that the one you haven't seen yet was the third that took many years before they got around to it, Beyond Reanimator, which I think, I'm not entirely sure even if it is underrated, but I don't think many people give it a lot of attention because it came so late and i think it's fantastic and it packs in a lot of additional lovecraftian references including a reference to the idea of the rats in the wall right. so there's there's a lot of stuff packed into beyond I, yeah i know you've you've convinced me to track it down and see it it's well worth it it's just well of course the, the shocking thing is as you found out last night is i don't actually own a copy of reanimator yeah, even I can't though you've said that. that it's a phenomenal <laughs> release. Yeah, that has no, great was, back you know behind the scenes yeah, stuff. And it's one of those DVDs. If you're a fan, you you, you got to have yeah, it. You gotta own it. Yeah, why wouldn't you do that? Well, I told you. I said I remember seeing the the green plastic case and thinking how awesome that was. Yeah. Wasn't there a, one that had like a glowing element to it? I think there was one that had a glow, or wasn't there one that came with like a, a glowing glow syringe or pen or something oh, yeah, like yeah, that? I maybe. Think so. maybe they're probably all discolored and leaking now. Yeah, and exactly. The discs are all ruined. Yeah. But, no, absolutely, a must-have. Yeah, I'll check um, it out. i got to find one. Well, one thing I was telling you was I grew up not having any real particular affinity for Lovecraft or seeking him out to read, but there were always things in my childhood even that now looking back I realize were all these little bits and pieces coming up, and one of them was a book that we just rediscovered while I was visiting here in one of the bookstores. One of the books that influenced me so much as a kid was this book called Fantastic Television. And now it makes me feel terrible because I can't remember the author's name. So I can look <laughs> that up. But it was a book that was just this huge, oversized, softcover guide to tons and tons of genre television shows at the time. It was a 70s book, so, you know, cut off at a certain point. But it would list a show like, say, Night Gallery or Twilight Zone and then do a TV guide log line for every single episode. Okay. But it would leave you hanging because it would give you the log lines the way you'd want them where it sure. doesn't tell you what's going to happen. For some reason, I always remember, I think it was Thriller or, right, or maybe it was Night Gallery or right up for an episode called The Girl with the Hungry Eyes. And it always gave me an eerie feeling like one day i got to see what this story is about. 
And one of them was an episode of Night Gallery, Pickman's Model. Mm, okay. And I eventually did wind up seeing the episode of mm-hmm. that. But to me, Pickman's Model was this little log line in fantastic television that sounded incredible, and I wanted to know what that story was. Right. And as we're sitting here right now getting ready to record, we have a book here that's a collection of Lovecraft's original stories, and I just flipped to the end of Pickman's Model and read the last line, <laughs> and just looking at the last line out of context gave me chills. So yeah. It's like, it was a great little concept, but Night Gallery did uh, a really cool adaptation of it in the 70s, so yeah. that's when I always remember that. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there were any other uh, TV shows at the time, maybe that had drifted into that territory. But again, you know what? The thing is, is that if, you, if you've ever seen a show or a film uh, where there's been some sort of, sort of tentacled horror, <laughs> That's right. uh, you can definitely tra- you know, trace that, that bloodline back to the Lovecraft I guess the so. mythology. And also the idea of things just breaking through from another reality to our reality. Mm-hmm. Just in looking at this, I was noticing, because I spend a lot of time with zombie movies. We'll get to that at some point. <laughs> um, but for instance, Lucio Fulci did a lot of well-regarded or at least well-remembered and loved, if not high quality, but they have their own quality. Getting too too much of a digression. Anyway, no, Lucio, no, that's fine because we're both fans. Lucio so. Fulci. Um, but at least two of them, The Gates of Hell and The Beyond, mm-hmm. are more Gates of Hell is also known to a lot of people, City of the Living Dead, are movies that are considered very Lovecraftian because they involve a breakdown of barriers between realities. Mm-hmm. And I never really thought about it that yeah. way. But now it's like, no, they're definitely treading on that same ground and dealing with a lot of the same stuff. Oh, they even use names and town, town yeah. names oh, and yeah. stuff in there. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Arkham turns uh, yeah, up. Yeah, Arkham is in there, yeah. So yeah. clearly yeah. Fulci loved that yeah. stuff. And, of course, we, we just dealt with this. It was the beginning of our entire show. But the Evil Dead series mm-hmm. is, you can't do a story with the Necronomicon without having, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so it's everywhere. Well, and then, you know, another place that it is, if you wanted, if we're just going to drift a little bit here, where do all the villains go in Batman? That's Arkham right. Arkham Asylum. Arkham Asylum. That's right. So It's amazing how it just threads through everything. Yeah. How much impact all of his stuff has had on so much pop culture. It's oh, incredible. absolutely, yeah. Yeah. G2V. Two longtime fans of two bionic shows discuss an episode in detail every two weeks. Cyborgs, a bionic podcast. Find us at chronicrift.com slash cyborgs. Or subscribe on iTunes. You wanted to talk, though, about some of the gaming. And one of the things that's interesting for anybody that's a D&D fan, I know my wife brought this up recently. She's a huge, huge Dungeons & Dragons fan. And not just playing it, but the history and some of the stuff they did early on um, is a book that you have sitting here with us that's one of the original D&D books. You know this a lot better than me. Mm Mm-hmm. And that included the Cthulhu mythos right, that yeah. later disappeared. De- deities and demigods, or deities and demigods, however you pronounce it. Uh, hang on, I'm just reaching over for it. We've got a big stack here of um, gaming-related books. See, we don't often have the opportunity. We're actually sitting in the <laughs> same place at the same time. We can actually look at stuff. 
So yeah, in my hands I have the uh, deities or deities and demigods that was published. I'm trying to see where the date is. Uh, 1980. So we're talking pretty early on. Um, this was the. Gosh, I think this was the fourth book. Fourth book published in the original uh, first edition, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. line. So it was if if memory serves, it went Monster Manual Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, Deities and Demigods. Mm-hmm. And uh, this particular edition is uh, that I have in my hands uh, is well known for having Cthulhu Mythos and the Melnimbonean Mythos. Again, this is uh, that's Elric, that's uh, mm-hmm. Michael Moorcock stuff. And uh, his stuff is again. There's there's an author who's hugely influenced by Lovecraft stuff as well. Okay. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, uh, some of that stuff was taken out of future editions of this particular book. Uh, so, but right off the bat, there we are, 1980. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can flip this sucker open, and I'm going to do it right now, just because it's it's cool, and I got it in my hands. And uh, here we are, Cthulhu Mythos. First listing for Cthulhu. Uh, we've got Azathoth, we've got Deep Ones, Hastur, Ithaqua, all that, all that is in here. Uh, now, interestingly, that um, if you do look, yeah, this is the one that doesn't actually have a, yeah, it doesn't mention Chaosium at all. And Chaosium, for those who don't know, uh, was the publisher of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game which has been around for many, many years now. And, uh, you know, I have a copy over here of that. Uh, but Call of Cthulhu, role-playing game uh, by Sandy Peterson, was released, I'm, I want to say 1980, but I'm, yeah, I think that's actually about right. So probably mm-hmm. around the same time. And uh, it's been released in multiple editions. Mm-hmm. And the company that owned that was Chaosium. And, and further uh, additional, further editions of that Deities and Demigods had a little copyright chaosium hmm, okay but then i think they completely pulled it out at one point hmm. uh but uh yeah and again you know i should have been better prepared in regards to that book but oh that's all right yeah it's a pretty it's an interesting little story we're but, ranging uh, all around with the whole i know we're like moving about here we just skip from wide ranging to, legacy to of, of all this stuff so <laughs> well it's just so prevalent i mean it's difficult to sort of maintain a focus when you're talking about something that's just everywhere no and and like i was saying at the top of everything it's wider in scope than I than I ever realized. Oh sure. Yeah. Because so many things another thing where I was looking at this list of all these movies that just are considered influenced by or inspired by and we just did our episode about John Carpenter movies that we sure. both really love and yeah. The Fog I didn't even think of it this way. The Fog is considered Lovecraftian by many people because of its use of a lot of motifs mm-hmm. that are familiar. And while it doesn't draw on anything specific, it does that I'm thinking, you know, you can be a fan of so many things in horror or gaming or comics or science fiction and not even realize there's this deeply embedded DNA of all this Lovecraftian storytelling and this mythos buried in everything. One of the things you brought up that's another one that that touches so many different media, comics and film and games, is Hellboy. Sure, yeah. And you're more familiar with that than me, too. Well, only I mean, I've certainly read a few, a few mm-hmm. things and, I've, you know, I like the movies. Um, but yeah, I mean, oftentimes the uh, the the enemies in in the Hellboy comics are your tentacular horrors and things like that. Obviously, this is why Guillermo del Toro was so drawn to it because he's a mm. huge Lovecraft nut and a Cthulhu Mythos fan. But uh, yeah, that I mean, the Hellboy stuff definitely is uh, standing up against ancient ancient gods and ancient creatures and 
and horrible things from the other side and yeah it's all in there and not to keep repeating because uh, like i said we already covered carpenter but it seems like he's a filmmaker that's deeply influenced by that the fog but we we covered the movies (laughs) that are listed on this list prince of darkness and the mouth of madness which its very title is directly referencing at the mountains at the mountains of madness so there's the thing and the thing yeah which is certainly the tentacular horror <laughs> that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and it's a and it, again, and it's a creature from beyond our world, right? That comes to our world, and we and it's incomprehensible. Yeah, you know what? And it's, it's doing the end is, of the world, and it's a apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, a bit of apocalypse. Yeah, so it's it's inescapable. I mean, you could even say things. A lot of the stuff with uh, films that deal with weird little cults and such also probably draw a lot from those uh, the Lovecraft stuff because. Oftentimes there are weird cults that are worshiping these ancient horrors, and mm-hmm. you know they they come upon these the secret societies and stuff living in small towns in the middle of the backwoods and sure. all that kind of stuff. And I sure. mean, ultimately, you just can't get away from this. It's everywhere. Yeah, which just shows how influential it is, especially for American, you know, for American literature. It's amazing. And to think that, like I said, it's, it makes me more inspired to go back and actually read his original work, right? And see it the way it was ori- or first presented, and then be able to revisit some of these things and think, oh, there you go. Now I see that this right. goes back to that. And and another thing that um, has come up recently that you are much more aware of than me. There was also part of this festival that we went to for the one night, but they were showing for the two nights, they were showing some short features, a lot of indie and low-budget but um, independently produced short features, either based on or inspired by. They do a much larger festival here. When is that? In April? Yeah, it'll be April 11th through 13th And that's uh, coming up as their 19th annual Lovecraft right. Festival. It's apparently it's a huge while. and phenomenal experience. It's pretty freaking awesome, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so many independent filmmakers. You picked up a Blu-ray while we were there of one. Right. Uh, I don't even want to talk about that a little bit. but oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, but it seems like there's a lot of... It, it's not something necessarily to get a studio involved. And obviously, Del Toro has been trying to get mm-hmm. one going for quite a while. Right. What is the Mountains of Madness, you right? To do, yeah, at the Mountains of Madness. But it seems like there's a lot of independent filmmaking going on that's bringing Lovecraft to disc yeah. or in, or to festivals and and doing it exceptionally well. Uh, there's a group in I believe they're based in Glendale, California. They, I, oh gosh, I'm probably going to get it horrifically wrong, but I think it's the H.P. Lovecraft Society. It might, I might not be right on there in that regard. But they, as, as we do with shows, though, we'll have show links for yeah, a lot yeah, of this yeah, stuff, and we'll provide a lot of links for all these things. So. Yeah, for sure. Uh, these guys, as far as I know, they originally started as a live action role playing game group. Hmm. And they would do these really elaborate LARPs with incredible props and costumes and, 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 I mean, just amazing stuff. And they actually started offering a lot of this stuff on their website. You can actually buy, you could buy things like Cthulhu statues or a, an entire box of correspondence from a various <laughs> story, all reproductions and typed up on t- with telegrams and maps that w- had bloodstains on them and all this incredible, incredible stuff. So to supply your own live event. Right, basically. right, absolutely, right. yeah. So they were they used to be sort of the go-to for, for all the LARP stuff, and I, I, I think they still sell that stuff. I know I bought uh, a set of their fonts. They did a real nice set oh, of cool. fonts, and they're all 1920s inspired, so like you can get... So you can do your headlines and your newspapers oh, and all that nice. kind of stuff. So great for if you're a Call of Cthulhu or a Cthulhu 
role playing game or this, you know, you got to go check these guys out. So again, check the the show notes. But um, they eventually decided they wanted to to uh, start doing films, and they did the silent Call of Cthulhu, mm-hmm. uh, which is a silent film, black and white. Everything about it is exquisite. It, they even the way that they handled their sets and the costumes and and the lighting it's it's beautiful it looks like an authentic uh, 1920s silent feature if i remember correctly i think it's available on netflix but if it is we'll we'll provide links for that so you can find yeah. it but i think it is isn't it I think it, it's, it it may be um or at least it I was certainly know, i mean i have the the dvd but i also have the they released a beautiful poster a movie mm. poster that's a this sort it of long it looks very period yeah, yeah. It's, abs- it's just great it's yeah. really wonderful stuff now that same group has also produced Whisper in the Darkness. Mm-hmm. Whisper in Darkness? I always forget that title. It's either in the or in. Whisperer in Darkness, it might be. You're Ooh. looking. I'm looking for one that says it's an adaptation. <laughs> it's called The Whisperer in Darkness. In Darkness, so, yeah. yeah. And that that one, instead of being an, uh, a silent film, they did that one as more of a, a noir hmm, Hollywood okay. film. Uh, and it's really, really spectacular. Very ambitious. It's got some stop motion in it. Uh, it's got CG. They they actually bought a plane, a period plane, wow. for certain scenes and, and dragged it out to shoot with it. Uh, they shot stuff in New England on location, and uh, for a f- you know fairly low budget film, it is it's really really worth seeing. It's excellent. And mm-hmm. again, you know these are probably as good of an adaptation as you're going to get because these are f- very loyal, faithful fans of of the source material. Well, that's what I was about to say, and actually throw it more as a question to you it seems like from what i'm gathering mainly through talking with you more and more and and now having come out and seen a little bit of this this was actually sort of like a little pre-festival for their main festival in april it seems like lovecraftian adaptations particularly in film are going through something of a renaissance right now but it's happening only on that level i mean only Right. But I mean, it's happening on the independent level mm-hmm. with, with groups of people that are putting the money together, in some cases Kickstarter or things like that, right. or pursuing doing these productions. It's not necessarily happening on the studio level or the big budget release, but maybe that's why more and satisfying and excellent adaptations are coming out because it's people that are passionate about right, it. Right, And it's funny, too, how a lot of them, and this is something you certainly don't see in Hollywood very often, but a lot of them are period pieces. Mm-hmm. They're not afraid to say, you know what, this story was written in the 20s or 30s, we're going to set it in the 20s or 30s. And you'd likely have someone in the studio say, Absolutely. yeah, but do it as a modern yeah, story. Yeah, you got to do a modern adaptation. And instead, no. That's it, it's another thing, too, that one thing that I do know is it does seem that a lot of these stories seem to live best in the period in which they were originally supposed to oh, be. Sure. Yeah. It doesn't feel right, necessarily, when you start bringing them out of that. Right. Well, I think a lot of horror works better before cell phones and things like that. <laughs> you know, it's if you're out in the middle of somewhere and some maaniac is chasing you, you can just whip your cell phone out and, you know, throw, check your GPS. And that would kill a lot of slasher to, movies. Yeah, right oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Pick so, me up. I'm at Crystal Lake. I just can't. <laughs> I'm not getting any bars. No, that's my bars. ringtone. <laughs> I'm not getting any bars here. But, uh, yeah, I think there, there, I think there's value there. I think there's, yeah. there's a reason that that stuff works better in a contemporary, but I say contemporary as right. in when it was originally written, uh, setting. Um, I do think the Elder Gods would probably be able to knock out your cell phone signal. Probably though, so. a wave of their tentacle. Yeah, so. Uh, it's kind of funny that you say that, and going back to gaming, 
because in the the uh, role playing game world with Call of Cthulhu, the original Call of Cthulhu and, and a lot of the other adaptations that have been released are are again still set in the twenties. Mm-hmm. Ideally, you, it's still you know the twenties style clothes and cars and technology and weapons. You know, you see there's all the illustrations will have the guys with Tommy guns and all this kind of great mm-hmm. stuff, and you know it, it's just it's just works. Mm-hmm. And I remember. You know, growing up when they released like it was like Cthulhu Now or something, and they like okay. they leapt it, you know, they pushed it forward to to modern day. I was so resistant. I just thought, what's the point? It doesn't fit. Yeah, I mean, if I'm going to play D and D, for example, I want to be medieval guys running around. I don't want to be wielding guns and you know forty fives and driving cars. And it's the same thing for the universe of Call of Cthulhu. I want to be playing in the twenties. It's another world. G to V. <laughs> Almost two decades, Midnight Syndicate has composed the soundtrack to your darkest nightmares. The imaginations of fans worldwide have been fueled by its gothic, horror, and fantasy symphonic albums. A staple of the haunted house and amusement park industry, for many, the music of Midnight Syndicate is the music of Halloween. Now, Midnight Syndicate will bring your nightmares to life in a spectacle of sight and sound from beyond. Support Midnight Syndicate Live on Kickstarter.com today. I feel horrible that I, I can't 100% remember for certain. I'm, I'm almost certain that it was Call of Cthulhu, but many years ago, and I have to give a shout out to a couple of friends, two friends who are very um, heavily into gaming and uh, we still a lot more than we do now. Um, gaming days, get together, do all kind of gaming. They, um, it was Laura Gillespie and Brian Lewandowski, so I'll make the names. Uh, they hosted a uh, live action role playing game night where we had like a dinner party night. I think it was a Call of Cthulhu night oh, that awesome. we had, and we all had roles to play, and we all played all night. They had this great house out in the woods where it took place all around out in the house, and people going crazy and insane and. Um, and it was a lot of fun. Oh sure. And it was that kind of thing. It was taking on a role and yeah. And it was period. You know, wanted to try to dress period and do yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. And it's something you didn't get the opportunity to do that much, but it's it's part of it too. I think it's it's something that it seems to be a structure that really fits well to immerse yourself in a gaming experience. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And just enjoy that period, like you say, it fits right in that time. Period. Well, you can act, you can actually get rules for Cthulhu Live. Yeah, I think that uh, was there. There are books that you can get that tell you how to run, you know, yeah. how to make the monsters, what to do with. Unique I think it was a specific thing they had. Yeah, yeah. so that yeah. exists. Um, I've done a couple of Lovecraftian or Cthulhu mythos inspired LARPs myself, mm-hmm. um, which were great fun. But um, yeah, just again, that's that's part of the the legacy, I suppose. There was a movie. I can't. I feel terrible now. I can't remember this. Um, came out a few years ago that I remember we watched the trailer and thought, oh, this looks interesting. What was the name of that movie with the air- oh, the kids on the airplane? It's not good. It's not good. No. <laughs> I know. But it looked, it was also... Altitude. Altitude, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. No. 
The trailer looked good. The trailer was phenomenal. Yeah. I, I own it. Okay. Um, yeah, it's uh, mm, no big okay. misstep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not good. But that's um, the thing, and I'm also looking now. We're talking about Del Toro. This is a man with a lot of clout and some great movies behind him. And having just done Pacific Rim, uh, he's moving on to some other things. Obviously, anybody who knows anything about Lord of the Rings stuff knows he, he would have done The Hobbit if that timing had worked out. And I think it's twice now that he's tried to get the Mountains of Madness project going. Mm-hmm. Yep. And last I read, I thought there's the possibility that that might still come alive again. You know, but I haven't followed it close enough. I'm not sure. I've kind of just given up on it until I see it. But that's the thing. It's like, when is there the possibility that Lovecraft will burst again onto the pop culture scene in an actual large production? Oh, sure, Something yeah. to be seen. Oh, like a it. lot of these small features, they're only going to turn up in these festivals, mm-hmm. or if you're someone who's predisposed to go seek them out. Right. But a big movie like that, could that reignite an even more mainstream awareness of and reinvestment in all this Lovecraft storytelling. And it's hard to say what would happen because there hasn't been one. Yeah. But it, it is, as we started the show, I mean, it's it's prevalent in other ways. The, yeah. the point is, is that I think most people know what Cthulhu is, at mm-hmm. least in regards to an image, uh, you know, this giant thing with tentacles and wings. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, a, a, a octopus head and wings. <laughs> um, so I think it is it is a cultural phenomenon already. Mm-hmm. But, like, yeah, I think if I think you could get away with doing in the feature film. I don't understand why we haven't seen it yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing I can think is, you know, At the Mountains of Madness is a phenomenal novella. It's really, really worth reading. and uh, But it's pretty ambitious. It deals with multiple races ruined you know cities under the ice all sorts of crazy stuff like that so it would be a pretty ambitious undertaking one of the actual notes that i'm looking at right now says that one of the reasons the idea was scrapped over time was an overlap with prometheus and that the less f- said about that the better well <laughs> apparently apparently some thought was that prometheus tread a little bit on yeah, that ground it does it does. And it was like, well, let's back off. Which uh, is that, which the problem is, is that the typical movie making thinking, which is, well, and we were just joking about this off mic earlier. Oh, about Carrie? Where Carrie's out <laughs> right now, and it's, and there's no paranormal activity out this year, which has sort of owned Halloween for a while, and you can say what you want about a declining quality. But there's also this weird thing. It's like, why is there only one horror movie allowed for <laughs> Halloween? So it's like, well, we can't do in Mountains of Madness because Prometheus is out. It's like, well, why, why does there not? need to be one? Yeah. <laughs> Just one. Well, so. I mean, for, yeah, and it's strange, too, because oftentimes movies come out either simultaneously or a few weeks apart, and they're remarkably similar. And that's a common thing Very also. Very common. It, where yeah. you have a movie in development and some other studio is working on the same thing, and, and we've seen that many times. Recently, there have been, what? Two or three movies within a short period of time, they were all Snow White-based films. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it happens. And yeah. Sometimes it happens deliberately where a studio says, they're doing one, we need to do one. Sometimes it's coincidence. Mm-hmm. And the quality uh, quality outs. I mean, you know, the audience votes with their dollar and you know gets tickets, and some of them succeed and some of them fail. I don't see why there needs to be. Well, we can. That's that's your horror movie for the Halloween that's the season. One you get. If you Enjoy. don't like it, too bad. That's it. You know. Yeah, it's very strange. But I mean, I would certainly love to see it, and I'd certainly love to see it at, at Guillermo del Toro's hands. I mean, I think it would be. He, he's he's one who could do it. He's one who could pull it off. 
I just watched a documentary about Lovecraft. Um, boy, I can't remember the name of it, but I I found it on via my Roku. Oh, okay. Roku. Uh, and it was great. It had Neil Gaiman and it had Guillermo Guillermo del Toro. It had a bunch of other very famous authors interviewed, and it was a it was great. I mean, it was from his birth all the way up to mm-hmm. his passing, and then they talked a little bit about the legacy. But uh, Guillermo, he's featured throughout and mm-hmm. offering really really amusing commentary. But you can see he absolutely adores the source material in his case. Uh, it's great stuff. Well, I guess I would throw out again, sort of more as a question. If we had to pick something that we would point to is, and and knowing that both of us have now stated a few times how mm. we're not the authorities right. to turn no, to this. Right, not by any stretch. Not except for being fans of what it's done to pop culture and how much we've enjoyed so much right. that it influenced, or that he influenced. What we we would pick is like something that would be at the top of our list then. Mm, okay. For whether it's inspired by or a direct adaptation. Well, direct ab- adaptation, I think I already touched base, and that was The Silent Call of Cthulhu. Okay. Um, you have to check it out. It's phenomenal. But while we're, uh, I mean, as while I'm mentioning that, uh, I did want to talk about a couple of the other ones, indie ones, that have come out that are really worth uh, investing your time sure. in as well. Uh, Die Farbe is another one that I just picked up on Blu-ray. That's the one you picked up, yeah. yeah. Finally got it on Blu-ray last night uh, at the, the screening. And uh, if you want to see that one, it's a German-produced adaptation of Color Out of Space. And it's terrific because it's shot in black and white, and except for the color itself is sort of this weird pinkish CG monstrosity mm-hmm. thing. Uh, sort of amorphous, hard to see what's going on. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, great adaptation. Superb. Uh, a couple other ones that are excellent. They did. There's a company that did a, a series of. I don't know if it's necessarily a series, but they did a, a few different films, and they sort of are all released from very similar looking labels. Uh, there's a really good adaptation of Cool Air, and it, there was another uh, adaptation of Cool Air that I think Albert Pune directed, but I, you know, latter Albert Pune stuff. No offense, is not so good. But this other one is really excellent because it's it's a period piece. It's actually set in the twenties. And Cool Air is a very very creepy story. But cool Air you're talking about from him was from two thousand six, by the way. By Pune or yeah. Pune? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've never seen that one. Yeah, a little nervous, but <laughs> yeah. But uh, those are definitely uh, uh, some good faithful adaptations. I would recommend. It does seem like we already said that seems to be the place to go. That it's indie filmmaking. It's indie that's stuff. where the Lovecraft adaptations. Well, they're not reach a, their they're, peak. They're not concerned with. Let's make it a big block, bo- you know, box office blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's have a big talent in there. Let's make sure the effects are perfect. Let's you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Those they're not falling into that trap. You know, the more I'm thinking about it too, the more I'm thinking about how much you can really connect everything. Another thing I threw out just innocently asking before we started recording was I was thinking, oh, yeah, so like even classic sci-fi like The Blob, and you were like, yeah, absolutely. Oh, sure, yeah. That fits. And now I'm thinking also, I know you're not a fan of the the Marvel superhero movies, and and I'm a huge fan of them, and I love them, but I'm thinking now of The Avengers and how the entire end of that film is about a hole opening up in the sky above New York and stuff just pouring out of it, and it's, yes, it's aliens, but it's these weird almost tentacled kind of um, cybernetic alien things. And I'm thinking there's still kind of a Lovecraftian air mm-hmm. to that and yeah. that, that reality's ripping open and that horrible things are coming through. And it's like no matter where you turn, you're seeing elements of the very same kind of stories that yeah. 
go all the way back to that. And it's Cloverfield. Cloverfield. It's a perfect example. Yeah. A thing that falls from space. Yeah. And starts if, wreaking if, havoc. If you watch carefully, yeah, yeah, that's what it seems, yeah. And the design of the creature itself. Oh, totally. Which actually, you know, you can say what you want about that movie. No, I, I don't think, like the design. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do find that creature unsettling to look yeah, at. Yeah, it's a little strange, yeah. yeah. I mean, it obviously was designed to have like a very alien-esque, yeah. alien quality to He's it. He's creepy looking. I don't like looking weird. at that. Thing. Thin yeah. legs and everything. And yeah, the, and it's the eyes. It's the black. Yeah, the, the blackest eyes. The blackest <laughs> eyes. But yeah, absolutely clever. Sure. Yeah. yeah, and of course, I guess you could even argue. We just talked about the Toro and Pacific Rim. He did it with a rift opening up in the ocean and all the stuff coming out. So. Oh yeah, why not? Yeah, it's just. <laughs> I guess what we're concluding with now is everything. that Lovecraft. Everything, everything. is Lovecraft. <laughs> Not every, quite. Every single... Under one Dalmatians? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Why not? They well, Ursula are. from uh, yeah. Little Mermaid, you know, she's got tentacles. That's right. <laughs> Little Mermaid is just, just awash with Lovecraftian <laughs> references. It's infecting your children. I can children. see the headline tomorrow. GW Podcast reveals <laughs> Disney and Lovecraft are in bed together. <laughs> Disney princesses are just indoctrinating children into Lovecraft. <laughs> And that's the yep, end of the that's show. That's right. Oh, God. Well, there goes the lawsuit. <laughs> GW's first official lawsuit. Um, yeah, what about. I mean, yeah, we, well, we are. We, obviously, we're realizing that a lot of the stuff is has been influenced. Uh, certainly, literature. I mean, there's. The 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 really cool thing about original Lovecraft and his contemporaries, it, as I said briefly before, is that it was a shared universe and it intended to be a shared universe. Mm-hmm. From the, I mean, as far as I know, from the outset, mm-hmm. so there was this encouragement to have other authors play in that great sandbox. Mm-hmm. The more they could add to it, I think, the more excited Lovecraft was. So when you started to introduce all of the the very famous books beyond the Necronomicon, you know, there's there's several other books that are important. And, of course, there's another thing, too, going back to Fulci, the whole Book of Ebon. Right, right, uh, Which, right. you know, that's another right. one. It's like, oh, is this crazy ancient tome that can do horrible things. Yep. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, and that that has continued to this very day as well. You can't go into a bookshop, if you can find one, uh, <laughs> and not find some book that is a collection of new Cthulhu mythos stories. Sure. It's going to be on the shelf there. Sure. Or there will be new novels that are going to be written by various authors. Brian Lumley. Uh, writes uh, or wrote he's still is still Lumley still alive I don't know quick check Wikipedia to the internet but uh, you know a lot of he wrote a lot of stuff that was uh, uh, influenced by Lovecraft and of course it turns up a lot in comics in in, oh, gosh, in yeah. so many ways still alive okay good seventy five right now um, a ripe young age yeah seventy five years young um, so many comic books that have dealt with exactly the kind of thing mm-hmm. I mean the just one example I can just pull out a character from Marvel was the man thing. Yeah. Great example of oh, Lovecraft yeah. and Creature, tentacled and something that rises up out of the swamp. Extra dimensional. He's at the nexus of realities and there's all kind of weird stuff. And of course D C had their swamp thing, which was a I can't remember now. I feel terrible. I I should be able to remember which one came first. They came around both around the same time, but I know one came first, but anyway. Oh swamp thing versus man thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um Anytime you see, deal with extra-dimensional things, Doctor Strange and Marvel dealing with weird magical creatures with tentacles, mm-hmm. fine. 
you're in Lovecraft territory again. Yeah. So yeah, I guess it's just it's just everything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's everything. It's everything. It's everything. All games considered with news. Now we have a press release. Views. The fiction I know is not everyone's cup of tea, but this one is pretty creepy. I like it. Reviews. It doesn't bother me as much because you're not worried about the weapons tables because there aren't any. And interviews. Sean Patrick Fannin. Greg Payline from uh, Microtactics Incorporated. Uh, I'm Andy Chambers with Games Workshop. On Tabletop Games, visit us at agcpodcast.info. That's agcpodcast.info. Well, and what I said earlier on about gaming, um, which is, we've talked a little bit about role-playing games, but board games, uh, Arkham Horror. Right. Uh, an ever-expanding... The Arkham Horror Empire <laughs> the of games. empire of Arkham Horror, and, and of course, Fantasy Flight Games embraced everything Cthulhu, so you've got the Call of Cthulhu card games, you've got Arkham Horror, you've got uh, Mansions of Madness, you've got Elder Sign, One of the things I should not have bought while I was here, Uh because Portland has everything I could ever want in my life (laughs) to purchase, was one of the things I bought to take home and um, try out, because it's a two-player game, my wife and I could sit down and play it, is the Cthulhu variant of Gloom, the card game Gloom. It's a specific Cthulhu Gloom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can't get away from it. Well, and you also can't get away from Portland because it's designed by Keith Baker, who lives in Portland. <laughs> in Portland. Thank you. It all comes full circle. <laughs> no, I think that's the other thing, too, is that because of the... Um, I, I See, I, I don't know how the, the whole Cthulhu licensing works. I mean, is it public domain? No, I don't think... I. Well, the thing is, that's why I think it got cut from the D&D stuff. But, yeah, we should have actually checked this. So let well, me the only reason I say that is it seems like you can't turn around, and again, going back to into a retail establishment. You go into a game shop, if you can find one, and, uh, well, we have oh, a dozen Oh, here you can find one. <laughs> but you go into a game shop, and you've got uh, Cthulhu dice, Cthulhu card games. You've got uh, board games, role-playing games. It just It's unbelievable how much stuff is there. Uh, Munchkin, the Steve Jackson... Uh, silly fantasy card game has a Cthulhu variant. Uh, Looney Labs has a Cthulhu Flux variant. Uh, it just, it doesn't, it, it, it seems like every, well, no, and even uh, uh, Twilight Creations, who do the Zombies games, they've done some Cthulhu stuff too, haven't they? I've also, I've also just, while we were asking this question, I was looking up, how this works. And the problem with a lot of things about copyright, intellectual property, trademark, licensing, all these things are different. All of them are intertwined. Lovecraft stories are in the public domain. Okay. But um, things related to the Cthulhu mythos are different because you're dealing with exactly what you were illustrating in this episode, that there are many creators Mm -hmm. with many different names in this mix. Um, And... Actually, uh, it this one particular article I'm looking at says Chaosium, for instance, is one of the parties that's really responsible for creating um, a lot of coherent awareness of this mythos. Uh, and theoretically, anybody can use Lovecraftian stuff, and it's in the public domain, but there are wrinkles to this that probably would take a lot longer than just hopping on the internet to look, but it's a little more complicated. Sure. So... 
that would explain strange things like, well, who is it that can exactly do a Cthulhu this or Cthulhu that? Mm-hmm. Um, but that stuff's difficult. And you know, the, the weirdest thing is the more you delve into copyright and trademark law, the more you realize that even people that spend all their time with it don't necessarily ever know who owns anything. Sure. There are yeah. entire companies that, that uh, Disney, for instance, is a company, where they're not even clear on some of the earlier stuff that they actually made, whether they still retain ownership <laughs> of or control in a certain way. So it's it's a murky environment. Wow. Maybe appropriately, given Lovecraft. Ah, murky, you know, it's yeah, kind of murky, because I did a water thing the with thing the thing. With the sea. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, I do want to, just because I have a massive stack of books here, I do want to touch a, touch base again on a little bit of the uh, the role-playing thing, because uh, I did mention Call of Cthulhu earlier, and that, of course, was the very first uh, Cthulhu Mythos role-playing game, which is still going strong several editions later and has so many supplemental books and you know things that have been released for it, including, mm-hmm. obviously, m- lines of miniatures, etc., but there's such an influence in the Cthulhu mythos in role-playing that there have been a number of other RPGs that have been released, several of which I own. Okay. Um, there is, uh, I've got right here in my hand, I've got the Realms of Cthulhu, which was published by Reality Blurs, and that's, that's for Savage Worlds, so they handle things a little bit different in that setting. There's the Trail of Cthulhu, and this is a really interesting one. Um, it uses the system that was, it's called the gum, gumshoe system, designed by Robin Laws, so gamers will probably know some of these names. Uh, but Trail of Cthulhu is written by Kenneth Haidt. And it's, uh, it's the kind of system where the, their response to uh, Call of Cthulhu was that sometimes your players are trying to look for some key bit of information and their dice rolls are terrible and they don't get that item. You know, granted, I think if you have a good enough GM, he's going to make sure that your players get the item anyway. But this game starts with the uh, idea that the clues and the important information will get into your players' hands, whether the, whether they like it or not. So that's kind of how the gumshoe system works. I want to I'm going to throw this in because oh, sure. I actually found this, and I will preface this by saying we are not a legal entity. Nothing we say in the G2V podcast should ever be taken as legal advice or legally binding in a court of law. However, if you're remotely interested in the winding ways of copyright and intellectual property, it might be interesting to note that there's a great deal of controversy, and I was already saying things are murky. This is probably the one thing you find out more often than not when you start delving into this stuff, is that it's hard to get an answer. Right. And when it comes to Lovecraft, there's actually ongoing controversy about the copyright status of many of his works. He had actually designated someone as an executor of his estate, uh, something that was incorporated into his will. Um his aunt had apparently carried out that. Uh, a guy, uh, someone by the name of R.H. Barlow was the one who was given uh, control. Yeah. Um, but uh, what we come down to are some things like any works published before 1923 are public domain in the United States. There's some disagreement about who exactly owns the copyrights for anything post-1923, which does include The Call of Cthulhu and At the Mountains of Madness, which would now have expired based on some of the laws, there are laws that the Copyright Act of 1976, Extension 1978, it gets crazier and crazier, and basically the later and later any works uh, come along that incorporate some of the mythos, it's a lot more confusing about whether they're directly owned by the creators or by a company, and you definitely want to check into anything before you would legally want to 
publish right. something or right. pursue it. Um, and apparent one of the things they do point out is, although this is a very convoluted uh, situation, Chaosium actually has a trademark on several specific Lovecraftian phrases. I'm reading some of this, by the way, from the wiki on Lovecraft, so I'm actually reading some of this. And it includes the Call of Cthulhu. Chaosium was actually able to trademark that phrase. Oh, wow. So okay. the Call of Cthulhu is trademarked by Chaosium. TSR, uh, and they bring up deities and demigods, had that section. But they did remove it, and this actually says the reason they removed it was because of Chaosium's intellectual property interest in oh, the okay. work. So there's an answer for us there, at least one. And this also says, you can look this up, maybe I'll actually... Links. Since it's kind of interesting, I'll do a link <laughs> to this whole article because while it may not be the final word on all this, if you're interested in this side of it, and I'm often interested in a lot of this stuff. <laughs> I do a lot of publishing, so sometimes it's fascinating just how crazy this all gets. It does say what we've been talking about, that Lovecraft himself was really open with encouraging the idea of using his work. Now, it's interesting sometimes how the law, which is intended to protect creators, sometimes even will work against a creator's desire. Sure. So he really wanted to build this mythos, but the ownership <laughs> rules sort of fight against that a little right. bit. So we'll actually do a link to this. and uh, Yeah, it you sounds can, fascinating. You can check it out, because who knows, some of you out there might be interested in right. doing something with Lovecraft and Cthulhu, and you'll want to know not to get sued. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was just thinking about the... Uh, recently, there was a big Kickstarter uh, snafu about the doom that came to Atlantic City. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you read about that. I did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. been going around the internet. We could always post a link to that That's ongoing nightmare sure. of a story. Uh, but that was, you know, again, that was a, a, a... As far as I remember, a Monopoly variant that mm. has to do with you know, old ones attacking Atlantic City in the 20s or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and that's a fascinating, sordid tale of oh, pretty how hor- not to horrifying handle Kickstarter. Story. Yeah, and, uh, but it also, again, it was a, another Cthulhu Mythos, clearly a Cthulhu Mythos story. The original edition was supposed to have these beautifully sculpted figures. Yeah. And uh, I, I'll never forget, I was actually at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival here in Portland a couple of years, ago, years back when they were first teasing it. And they showed us images and slides and, and you know of, of all the stuff that was going to be made for this game, and it looked amazing. Hmm. Uh, and one half of that development team was Lee Moyer, uh, who is also lives in Portland. <laughs> but he, he is he did not have anything to do with the uh, the disastrous Kickstarter snafu. So everybody cool lives in Portland, apparently. Yeah, we we yeah we dodged the bullet somehow. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that's pretty crazy. But and. Uh, the only other thing I was going to mention is that one of the more recent uh, RPGs that I, I picked up that's straight right on the cover says a storytelling game of Lovecraftian horror is one called Tremulous. And uh, that one, I haven't had a chance to run it or anything, but I did support it, and that was a Kickstarter project. Hmm. And uh, that one actually, just for those interested, has, I think it's called forward-facing die rolls or something like that, where the GM never rolls the dice. Hmm. It's, die, die rolls are all handled by the players. The players effectively dictate what happens in the game, but uh, it's supposed to be quite quite neat. Uh, that was again, it was a Kickstarter project, and I have the hardcover edition here right on the table. But well, based on everything we've been talking about, it's very clear that this is something that is deep within the DNA of any horror fantasy storytelling in any medium. Sure, and it's certainly not going anywhere. One of the questions we brought up that I guess we're both kind of interested in seeing is. Will it ever reach a certain status where we will see something on the level of a big mainstream film release 
that will a do it justice or b even deal with it at all in a way unlike say for instance Stephen King's The Mist was obviously a big film release mm-hmm. but it was inspir- inspired by not direct and it didn't do that well though, and either. it didn't do that no. well but despite it being a good movie I like it yeah, yeah. it's really good um, but seeing whether Del Toro will bring, be able to bring something to the right. screen or someone else or if it will remain something that sits better within the world of independent filmmaking and all and gaming seems to be one of the largest areas where it's been embraced. Yeah, it's doing really well there. This is G2V. For almost two decades, Midnight Syndicate has composed the soundtrack to your darkest nightmares. Imaginations of fans worldwide have been fueled by its gothic, horror, and fantasy symphonic albums. A staple of the haunted house and amusement park industry, for many, the music of Midnight Syndicate is the music of Halloween. Now, Midnight Syndicate will bring your nightmares to life in a spectacle of sight and sound from beyond. Support Midnight Syndicate Live on Kickstarter.com today. Now, one of the things that's going on also this month, we're covering all this um, horror-themed material for Halloween, is that we were very fortunate to have... Um, the guys from Midnight Syndicate, one of the incredibly well-known uh, musicians and composers, composing teams that have done music that is familiar to almost anybody that has attended countless Halloween attractions and events. They've put out a whole slew of, DV- of DVDs, of CDs, albums of so much of their work, with many of their albums themed to certain kind of strains of horror. Um, You'll be hearing quite a bit of that throughout our shows this month. Uh, we've been incorporating some promotion. Uh, one of the things Midnight Syndicate is doing right now is a Kickstarter campaign. We're certainly hearing the word Kickstarter everywhere in <laughs> pop culture now. But Midnight Syndicate, and we're certainly uh, promoting this and helping to support them because they've been so gracious with providing music for us, is a Kickstarter campaign for them to be able to do a live tour. And you'll find the link and all the information about that right on our g2vpodcast.com website. But one of the other cool things is, besides being gracious enough to give us the opportunity to incorporate their music, they have provided us with prizes, CDs, uh, some of their titles that they've released over the years. And we're giving listeners of the podcast a chance to win copies of Midnight Syndicate albums. And in this particular episode... And Midnight Syndicate itself, I think, didn't they recommend to us which would be the the albums that would work well for our various yeah, themes? Yeah, I, yeah. When I when I told them we were going to be doing a uh, Lovecraft uh, themed episode, I got a recommendation to use the Thirteenth Hour, which you have in your hands right there. Yeah, and right on the front it says Midnight Syndicate's best-selling orchestral haunted mansion epic, the Thirteenth Hour. This disc features Midnight Syndicate's haunting blend of horror movie music, dark orchestration and chilling sound effects that draw you into the halls of a haunted Victorian mansion 
with a sinister history. Well, anybody that's a fan of Midnight Syndicate, and I have to say, I think we all are, obviously. Oh, yeah. But my wife and I have been listening to Midnight Syndicate for years and years. When Halloween time comes along, which for us is somewhere mid-September into November, um, CDs and the music and iTunes turn over pretty much substantially to Midnight right, Syndicate right, music. Sure, yeah. So we have here uh, the 13th Hour, and we have a copy of the 13th Hour CD that is a prize that one of you listening to this podcast could win if you answer a trivia question that Scott has ready to go. All right, so the question is, H.P. Lovecraft's incredible story, At the Mountains of Madness, was published by which magazine? You've got five choices here. Amazing Stories, Argosy All Story Weekly, Weird Tales, Astounding Stories, or Startling Stories. One of those magazines published at the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft in 1936. Which magazine was it? And that question, as Scott just said, will also be in the text on the gwpodcast.com website for this episode, along with all the show links. The person who answers a trivia question correctly, you can contact us at contact at gwpodcast.com or... Well, let's say they can even leave the answer on the Facebook page, too, right? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. People can actually post to the Facebook page and try it out. Whoever gets that answer to us and gets the right answer will get a copy of Midnight Syndicate's album, The 13th Hour. Yeah, and I think what we're going to do is, because we're expecting at least more than one of you to give us the correct answer. (laughs) We certainly are. uh, we'll, we'll We'll pull all of the correct answers together, and then we'll either... Go old school and, and, and draw print them out and draw them out of a hat. Or yeah. we'll uh, use some kind of modern app algorithm thingy yeah. to pick the correct answer out of that. We promise pool, that so. if more than one person gets it right, we'll do it in a nice random fashion. Yeah, exactly. Make sure that Only one it. of you is going to win a yeah. copy of the 13th hour. And we should probably also mention that to prepare people for next time, we have one more episode coming up in the month that's also horror and Halloween themed. We will still be featuring the music of Midnight Syndicate in that one. And we have another album, which we will reveal at that time, which has also been provided to us as a prize for that episode, which will have its own appropriate question. So if you don't get this one, there will be another opportunity in the next episode to win a Midnight Syndicate album. But we'll get to that when we get to that episode. Well, I think we're just about done. I think we've covered as much as we possibly can without delving even further into each individual adaptation, which we could certainly be here forever doing. And I know that I'm already feeling like I'm slowly growing madder and more insane as we've been talking. As we said at the top of this episode, this is the first opportunity we've ever had to do one of these face-to-face in the same spot, sitting here in Scott's home in Portland. Um... It's been a great opportunity and one I hope we'll get the opportunity to do again soon. But as I'm looking across the table right now, Scott seems to be growing gills and I'm not really sure what's going on. So I think it might be a good idea to stop and wrap this up before anything gets crazier. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried for myself and him. Thanks for listening to this episode of the G2V Podcast, part of the Chronic Rift Network at chronicrift.com. Visit our official website at g2vpodcast.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Join our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at G2V Podcast. And you can always email us at contact at g2vpodcast.com. 
Our show music is by Brian Boyko and Midnight Syndicate. <laughs>